Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham with nhjournal.com, where I hope you have signed up to get our absolutely free newsletter every morning in your email box, which we also invite you to subscribe to for $4.99 a month, even though it's free. Anyway, all the details at nhjournal.com. We have a terrific conversation coming up with former Democratic Congressman Paul Hodes of the 2nd Congressional District, which is a fascinating conversation to have in light of the new poll numbers that hit on Monday afternoon from NH Journal and Monday evening from St. Anselm College. And they do great polling over there as well. And uh, and I do want to say one thing because uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, feedback here at New Hampshire Journal Newsroom World Headquarters about uh, the disparity in the NH01 numbers. Uh, our poll uh, found the race at, with Mowers with 31% of Republican, likely Republican primary voters in the first CD, 31% for Mowers, 16% to Caroline Levitt, so a, almost two to one break there, 9% for Tim Baxter, 8% for Gail Huff Brown, 3% for uh, Russell Prescott, and then 33% undecided, so undecided wins. And in the uh, St. A's poll, much, much closer. Matt Mowers has just 25% of the vote, not 31. And Caroline Levitt has 21% of the vote, not 16. And then after that, it's very similar. Brown at nine, Baxter at eight, uh, Prescott at two, and uh, also 33% undecided. So the only difference are those top two numbers. And look, the first thing I say about polls is there's no arguing with polls. I mean, obviously some polls are scams. Uh, they have a great pollster at St. A's. We use a pollster who's rated by 538. They're fine. Uh, our polls were taken within a week of each other. St. A's was about a week earlier. So, but why the difference? Well, one thing I'd point out is in the, because of the bizarre way math works, if you just take six points from our number from Matt Mowers, and give that same six points to Caroline Levitt. In other words, 6% of the sample switches, they decide, you know, they want Levitt, not Mowers, or vice versa. You end up with the same A's number. So sure, the disparity looks big. And when it comes down to winning an election, every vote counts. So yeah, you could argue that it is big. But on the other hand, it's not as big as it seems at first. The problem for the folks in the first district is that this really looks like a two-person race, and that's a tough hill to climb for uh, Brown and for uh, Baxter and for Prescott. So that, there's that. Also, while the St. A's numbers on the Republican primary are going to get the vast majority of the attention, and by the way, they should. I mean, these numbers are terrible. The second CD, nobody's above 12 points. I mean, come on. Kind of echoes a, a piece I read recently at NH Journal about it was time for candidates to step up and show that they want to win and you know grab the ball and run with it. But whatever. Check out the numbers for Hassan, Pappas, and Custer, the reelect numbers, the approval numbers. What's really fascinating is go to St. A's Crosstabs and just go from Joe Biden to Maggie Hassan back and forth. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. But Not nearly as fascinating as our conversation with former New Hampshire Congressman Paul Hodes. And those dulcet tones 
are the one and only former Democratic congressman from New Hampshire, Paul Hodes. Congressman, welcome to the New Hampshire Journal podcast, and thank you for the musical selection. Sure. Glad to be with you, Michael. So I love the fact that you've got congressman, green tech guy, and musician in your portfolio. There aren't a lot of people in that lane of the America's political highway. Yes. Some people would say, you know, if you're a jack of all trades, you do none of them well. So, <laughs> um, but um, I'm keeping busy. Well, so, uh, and you've got some gigs uh, for uh, your music group, which how should I, uh, Paul Hodes and Friends? Is that, is that how this Well, goes? you know, I've actually got a couple. I've got a, a rock and roll band called the Blue Buddha Band. And um, my wife, Pego and I, um, are still playing together. And on August 27th, we'll be at the John Paul Jones Park in Kittery, Maine at 530 for an outdoor show with our favorite side guy, Kent Allen, and our daughter is coming up from Nashville. So oh, cool. We're going to have a we're going to have a great time. And that'll all be in the show notes here of the podcast and up at NHJournal.com as well. So for people who want to follow up, on that so tell me about your worst musical gig i i asked the question because i spent six years doing stand-up full-time on the road and so the road is a fascinating place tell me about your worst gig oh man i, I it's it, it's hard we you know we had we had a bunch i i'd say probably one of the one of the worst gigs i ever had was um at a bar it was in merrimack new hampshire Mm -hmm. where not only uh, didn't people listen, but if they did, they were throwing things. <laughs> and and then the bar owner refused to pay us. That's always and the worst game. Yeah, I, it was bad. And and it was a real comeuppance for me because, you know, I, I practiced law for a long time. And here I was, a lawyer, and now I'm a rock and roll guy playing in, <laughs> playing in this bar. And and the owner just said, no, go, go, go take a hike. I'm exactly. not paying you. And and besides, people have been throwing things at us. So <laughs> that was not high up in my list of fun gigs. I actually, when I first was stand, started doing stand up for money, which I was stunned that people would pay me to talk. I just, if I had only known that, you know, uh, I worked a, a gig where they literally they they couldn't turn the lights off over the pool tables when the show started. That wasn't good enough. They had to take the bulbs out of the lights <laughs> so that people would not shoot pool. <laughs> in front of us while we were doing our gigs. It's a, it's a, it's a ton of fun. What is more fun though, being a lawyer, being a musician or being a member of Congress? Uh, well, I love, I love, I love playing music and writing songs and recording them and playing them live for people. And I loved my job as a Congressman. It was an honor to represent the people of the second district of New Hampshire and have an impact on uh, national affairs uh, and get some things done that really, I think, made a difference. So that was that was for me a, a privilege and honor, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm going to ask you to put your uh, pundit hat on here for the podcast, because that's what any journal is about. And I think you're in an interesting spot because you were elected in a wave. 2006 was a great year for Democrats, terrible year for Republicans. And then you ran, switched to run for U.S. Senate and either were caught in or one could argue evaded a wave in 2010. So based on that experience, when you look around now, do you see a wave in 2022? So um, the, the answer is, you know, uh, a, a couple of months ago, if you'd asked me the question, I would have said uh, things were steeply uphill for Democrats, although I don't think 
uh, even a couple of months ago, the conditions were what they were back in 2010. And as I said, then you can't surf a tsunami. So a couple of months ago, I thought Democrats faced a, a really steep uphill climb. Um, I think that there's probably still an uphill climb for lots of reasons, including historical precedent about first term uh, presidents and their midterms and the party in power uh, taking over a bad situation and having to work on it. Um, but I think that recent events and some of the accomplishments that Democrats have put up on the board, uh, the January 6th committee's work. Um, have lessened the the degree of that climb, and I and I'm feeling uh, better uh, about the prospects for Democrats. You know, and I hear that from a lot of Republicans too. A lot of nervous phone calls about. I thought this thing was going to be like you said, a tsunami, and now it looks like it's going to be a storm, but not the kind of crashing storm you need to win some of those tougher, uh, you know, uh, seats. Are, are you surprised that both uh, Larry Sabato down at the University of Virginia and the Cook Political Report, neither of whom anyone would describe as you know right wing lackey outfits, uh, say that your old district, the second district, is a toss up? It's a pretty it's been pretty solidly Democrat since well two thousand six. Uh, that's that's true, but New Hampshire has I don't think anything in New Hampshire has ever been anything other than a swing. Uh, I really don't. I mean, I, I always looked at it that way. You know, you had to go out every two years as a member of Congress and and really connect with folks and let them know what you had done and why you wanted to keep the job. And uh, there really New Hampshire is not a place for political job security and never has been. <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, New Hampshire is um, continuing along its path of independence and eccentricity. We've seen in this state. Um, a rise of the far right kind of a free state Tea Party MAGA uh, group uh, that is having an impact now. Whether whether that impact is positive or negative, we'll we'll find out a little <laughs> better come November. But I right. I think uh, there's been an impact, and if in the end New Hampshire. Um, swings back to the right in terms of of some of its uh, even you know further right than 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 we saw in the last election, that wouldn't come as a total surprise to me just because I think New Hampshire charts its own course. Uh, so two years ago, uh, New Hampshire was the only state in the union where Republicans picked up both the House and Senate at the state level, and yet Joe Biden handily won by nearly eight points, despite what some of the Republican candidates for Congress would have you believe Joe Biden actually won in New Hampshire. Uh, when people from other states ask you, how, how the heck does that happen? Paul Hodes, what do you tell them? Well, uh, I sometimes respond with a slack jawed silence and a dull <laughs> stare, uh, trying to fig figure it out myself. Hey, that's but, my move, Mister. Back, get your own move. Slack jawed yeah, right. yokel is right in my lane. But yeah, buddy. you know, look, I think that in New Hampshire, um, politics are are very very local in some ways, and so when it comes to state offices, I think people really are are looking at people and some different criteria than they may be when it comes to choosing the federal delegation. And I think New Hampshire has a penchant for wanting to uh, see balance in its politics. And it's not surprising to me that people uh, will split tickets between Republicans at the local level and Democrats at the federal level. 
Uh, and yet at the federal level, the state has been pretty you know, democratic, uh, for the 21st century. And, and, you know, it's no doubt, you know, you look at the first district and people see the ping pong ball and they kind of use that as a measure, but yeah, if they're both the last three, uh, incumbent members of the federal delegation who've been thrown out of office were all Republicans. Uh, only one Republican has carried that the presidential level in this century. And that was George, uh, W Bush in a fluke. And uh, we have a all democratic delegation right now. Uh, do you think that has to do with the kind of northern versus southern divide on how they view the national parties? That is, the Democratic brand is very weak south of D.C. and the Republican brand is very weak north of New York City. Or is it kind of a, a you know fluke of, for example, Kelly Ayotte lost by you know 1,014 votes. You know, you very, you very well could have had a U.S. Republican senator the past six years. So is it right. more of just kind of the matchups or is there a broader, you know, it's one thing to elect a Democrat to be my governor who I can kind of see in Concord. It's another thing to send, excuse me. It's one thing to elect a Republican to be my governor. It's another thing to send a Republican down to DC to join in with Mitch McConnell and those troublemakers that none of my friends like. I think New Hampshire Democrats have successfully walked a, an appropriately narrow line um, in terms of uh, serving in a practical way. And often the New Hampshire Democrats have been successful and, and take a look at Jean Shaheen and her longevity mm -hmm. and her success as both governor and United States Senator um, Maggie Hassan. Um, it, it's hard to paint Maggie as a fire breathing Ocasio-Cortez type, you know, a uh, uh, far left winger. And the same goes for Annie Custer and Chris Pappas. Um, New Hampshire Democrats uh, who are successful tend to be very practical um, and uh, are able to outreach to independents mm -hmm. in a way that gives people comfort that they're not going to have uh, ideologues representing them in Washington, but they're going to have practical people who deliver results for their constituents. So I, I've, I've heard a couple episodes of your podcast, and I urge people who want an interesting mix of politics, life, and observations to check it out. Uh, and I, one of the things I want to ask you is we hear a lot in our reporting at NH Journal from very frustrated progressives who say, you know, something along the line, you know, they basically, they quote George Wallace from, you know, 40 years ago. There's not a dime's worth of difference, you know, between Democrats and Republicans. They just mean it from a different side of the political spectrum. Are there any progressives in New Hampshire? Is there a progressive movement in New Hampshire? And if not, how the heck do you explain Bernie Sanders winning the state twice? Um, first, I think there is a strong progressive um, wing of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire. I Counselor, I would challenge you to present the court with any evidence that there is a progressive wing well, in New Bernie, Hampshire. Democratic as you said, Bernie team. Sanders won yeah. twice here. At, yeah, at, once again, he's the exception because he's this out-of-state guy. Where is well, there a, a movement inside the state? Well, look, if you take a look at many of the younger Democrats who are, who are coming up, um, you read the blogs, you read Twitter, and you follow social media, there is a strong progressive movement that is in line with New Hampshire's kind of independence and sometimes eccentric politics. It may not be the dominant element 
in the party. Um, you've got Ray Buckley is a long-term and very successful chair, and he is scrupulous, I think, in his in his in, his, in the way he does his job. But if it is, uh, I think, fair to say that the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party has had success um, in New Hampshire, certainly at the federal level, and often uh, as leadership at the state level. So that's a, a successful tradition for Democrats. And at the same time, New Hampshire, I think, is proud of thinking itself as a place where uh, new candidates and change um, are are considered important. Mm -hmm. uh, take a look, you know, I, I mean, just the, the, take a look at, at Bernie's Bernie's success. And often in remember that, especially in primaries, um, uh, the progressive wing, so-called the party is probably more active than traditional voters. Uh, well, I, once again, looking at the candidates, looking at the people who are running, uh, you know, and the, the the support that they have. For example, if you had a viable progressive movement, you wouldn't have Representative uh, Pappas and Senator Hassan both calling for increased oil and fossil fuel production. You wouldn't have them opposing uh, ending Title 42 on the immigration issue because there would be too much pressure from their progressive team for them to do that. They have no problem doing that. There's been a few protests outside their offices by very smart and concerned progressives, but no political consequences. That, that to me, that's pretty much a sign that you're more abundant. And I'm probably misusing that word, but you're the lawyer, so I'll let you say. Hey, listen, when I, when I, I the situation probably hasn't changed that much since I was in Congress. I, mm -hmm. you know, people like to pigeonhole. I used to think of myself as a progressive centrist at the time. <laughs> And I, I've probably moved further to the left in 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 many of my views mm -hmm. uh, since that time, but but probably still recognize that um, change that is attractive to voters is often change that seems practical, moderate, and incremental, mm -hmm. as opposed to um, uh, people who campaign on the most change possible. Right. Uh, I'm not sure voters are that attracted. Um, or feel comfortable uh, with wholesale change so much as they are looking for what we could call a practical approach to moving things forward. I'm going to ask you a question in a minute that we asked at one of the debates New Hampshire Journal hosted. I'm going to give it to you now so you can think about it and then we can wrap up. The New Hampshire politician, past or present, living or dead, that you admire or you know think of the most or think is you know particularly important to you. I want to ask you something more pragmatic, though, uh, right now, and that's about the question of the first in the nation primary. If uh, you know they flew you down to the DNC meeting, what would your pitch be for New Hampshire to keep it? Or do you agree with most registered Democrats who've told UNH in three polls in a row now that they don't really care about keeping the first in the nation primary? You know, I think it is. I think it's important. Uh, if it's a it's a matter of state law um, <laughs> at this point, you know, when does something become a tradition or precedent worth keeping? Um, we've had it for a long time. Um, New Hampshire is changing. It's changing demographically. Um, the demographics of the state have changed considerably in the past 20 years. Um, and New Hampshire has both the infrastructure and the experience to give candidates the opportunity to um, develop their campaigns, think through and talk about their issues 
in a way that um, very, very few states have because of its size. Um, uh, we're easy to get around. So uh, it places a premium on actual personal contact as opposed to a tarmac campaign. Um, and we know how to do uh, primaries really, really well. Uh, there's no, uh, it, I think it's, it, it's important that we keep it. It's important that we keep doing it well. Well, it appears that New Hampshire is not going to keep it based on the word that's coming out of D.C., the fact that they had to postpone the announcement until after the midterms. Not good. And I'm one of those people that, that I've just been really puzzled when uh, former DNC chair Tom Perez said the problem with New Hampshire Democratic primary voters is they're just too white. We can't let a state this white pick our voters when Howard Dean said the same thing. And, you know, these are two. DNC officials. This isn't. I'm. I'm. I'm not. I'm going waste. I'm not gonna waste time quoting the. You know, activists. Whatever. You know, I mean, they got their own agenda. This is. It's pretty mainstream when the DNC chairs are saying, "Hey, you people are too white." Why didn't anyone in the Democratic Party in New Hampshire stand up and rebut them? Say, you know, this is bad, or look at these the, the voters' records. You know, in essence, right now it appears that the reason why New Hampshire is likely to use the primary is because the voters have a problem, not because the party or the system, not like Iowa where they can't count or whatever their problem is. This it really is a slap in the face to the voters if you lose the primary because of who the voters are. Am I misunderstanding? I'm not trying to be unfair. I really am genuinely taken aback by how this is all unfolded. Well, look. I mean, in terms of the state's demographics, um, like Maine, like Vermont, uh, New England, uh, you know, northern New England is predominantly Caucasian. Uh, you, you can't get around that. It's true. Although, as I said, New Hampshire's demographics are changing substantially. Take a look in the larger cities, Manchester, Nashua, you know, literally 100 languages being spoken in the school. Um, lots of new residents from lots of different places. Our but demographics still one of the five changing. widest but states in the country, still way up there, you know. And there's no, you know, Michael, there's really, there, you can't deny that. On the other hand, you can say that there are other factors that favor the New Hampshire primary uh, that uh, outweigh uh, the simple demographics and that uh, simply as the first in the nation, it will be followed by other primaries um, in which the demographics are, will be different. And uh, that combination of New Hampshire first followed by other primaries as a system will work well and in fact has worked well um, to uh, produce uh, successful candidates. Take a look at what happened in the last election. Uh, Joe Biden didn't do well in New Hampshire. Um, he went on to to win uh, with in, with states with different demographics. So mm -hmm. I think you have to look at the system as a whole um, and not just uh, condemn New Hampshire and its voters uh, for who they are. Well, you know, some people would argue that America should have listened to New Hampshire when it said he, Biden was the fifth best candidate on the field because his uh, uh, you know performance as president based on polling has been, you know, not great. In fact, he's has the, has the worst polling of any president in the modern era at this point in his presidency. I, I had to laugh when I saw a big headline today. His poll numbers have jumped up to 40 percent approval, 55 percent disapproval. It's not great. How does an and obviously Rep Republicans campaigning in 2018 had this same problem with Trump, whose polls were nearly as bad. 
What's that like to be in Congress and have your team's, you know, captain, if you will, your and how do you talk to the voters you know, in a year where, like, for example, 2010, President Obama's his polls never were this low. But, you know, he was he was struggling. Obviously, Republicans would go on that year to win 63 seats in the House. How was that like? What was that like to campaign at a time when you knew your president wasn't as popular as you might hope? Uh, it makes it a little tougher for sure. Um, it, it's much better if I'm you're so I have to mark the understatement button on my, if you're coming click. Right. It, my you know, it's always, it's always better as a candidate if you're riding high on a wave of happiness. Um, but you know, in politics, that's rarely the case. I always, I, you know, no matter how I, how, how I was doing, I always ran like I was 20 points behind. Now right. in 2010, I was 20. <laughs> points behind. So, so that, so that was easy. <laughs> And there was, you know, no escape for for right. who I was, a Democratic member member of Congress up against a popular uh, statewide recognized attorney general. Um, but in general, uh, I think there are, you know, there's less than 100 days to the midterms. Uh, Democrats have been producing some pretty good results. January 6th committee is going to be back with uh, more hearings in September. Um it's a very dynamic and quickly changing situation. And I, I mean, as we look at things now, gas prices have come down. Um, recent reports say that inflation has leveled off. Um, I think uh, we may see some real changes at the, in, in terms of the voters' perception of the president, who, you know, we probably worth a whole other show, I think has done a remarkably good job in a very challenging circumstance. And I think there are some other issues at work uh, about him and the state of the country that uh, it's hard for voters to appreciate sometimes. That said, as a candidate, it's always better to be riding high rather than uh, playing, having to play any defense about uh, what's going on at the top. Right. And when I ran, when I ran in 2010, I think both the president and uh, Vice President Biden recognized, they certainly did in a call to me after the election, that uh, they had uh, created a real challenge uh, for uh, what I was trying to sell to the voters. What's that like to get a phone call from the president of the United States? That's just got to be amazing. Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to serve as a national co-chair for President Obama, and uh, we had a good and close and um, personal relationship that I treasured and valued uh, and treasure to this day. Um, uh, it was an extraordinary experience, and I was honored um, to have helped him get elected and uh, and to have spent time with him, with the vice president at the White House and um, in doing whatever I could to help move the country forward. Yeah, but is so, it but I mean, is there somebody like holding the phone going, honey, it's Barack. He's on he's on the phone. I mean, is it like that? Just hang on a well, second. I'm in the bathroom. I mean, is, it, is that, is that I mean, does that you know, work? It, it's a little more abrupt. It's hold, please, for the president <laughs> of the United States. And uh, I'd say, OK. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you, you're working in the energy sector now with a solar project. Shanti, am I saying that Shanti right? Shanti Energy LLC. Shanti energy. Yeah. One of my frustrations with having a conversation about energy is that you, I, I, I feel like that there are two conversations going on and in, in, in missing each other. One is 
in the long term, and by the long term, I mean literally like half a century. I don't mean in five years. You're going to have all kinds of shifts in how we get our energy. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's just, that's the way the world is. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we're still burning a liquid, you know, dug up in the ground in the 1800s in Pennsylvania in homes in, in New Hampshire. And so you, you, you got to have shifts in technology. That's going to happen. And then there's the other conversation where people are going, and that's why I want my solar panel to power my town today. And I'm like, uh, you know that on a good day, solar's two, 3% of the national energy grid and that we're nowhere close to either having the panels, the technology, the ability to deliver and monitor the power. There's all kinds of tech about moving the power around. You have the nighttime problem, et cetera, that there's just, there's a huge gap between where we actually are. And so some of us want to have a conversation about what do you do today to bring down costs and be smart. And other people say, no, 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 we've got to think 50 years only. Do you see that gap? And what's the way to bridge that gap with policy? Well, look, the federal government has just passed a huge um, and historic bill to mm -hmm. uh, build our uh, sustainable renewable energy sector in this country. New Hampshire is way behind both the in impetus at the federal government and um, our neighboring states and much of the nation. We're a donut hole. Um, we uh, have an imperative uh, to move to a clean energy economy that goes way beyond uh, uh, what people are looking at in terms of the long term. We need immediately to move as quickly as we can to a clean energy economy because, frankly, um, our lives as we know it on this planet are imperiled. Uh, and we've got an, an emergency that ought to be a crisis like an invasion or a collapse of the economy or anything else. So the planet's burning. And we've got to do something about it. So from from where I sit, um, we need it's all it's it's all engines forward, all speed ahead in doing whatever I can to help us move in a sensible, sensitive and practical way to um, clean energy. So I'm working on solar. I'm working on EV. I'm working on electric uh, vehicles and buses, right. batteries. Uh, I'm also working uh, with a developer who um, is the pioneering developer of net zero uh, residential developments in the country. And we're uh, about to embark on a project in Burlington, Vermont, that uh, is going to be the largest uh, net zero residential uh, development in the country. So there are bright spots. Um, and I but think when it's you say pragmatic that... and quickly, what like what do you mean by that? Right now, there are statistically speaking no electric cars in New Hampshire. Right. Um, so there's, so there's, not so... only are we not using <laughs> wind and solar, we're still burning oil that was driven in a diesel truck to my house in forty three percent of the homes. So hey, is so what's the, what's quickly and pragmatically there, Michael? The state energy policy enunciated by the state energy agency relies uh, pretty much solely on market forces as opposed to any government intervention, totally right. out of step with what's necessary at this point. Uh, we've been suffering with $5 a gallon gas and the oil companies have been raking in billions and billions and billions of dollars of profit. Um, it is fair and right uh, for government to protect its citizens and act to protect our environment. Uh, we need governmental policies at the state level that incentivize 
uh, energy efficiency, which is low-hanging fruit, renewable energy, um, where and the technology is here. Um, and it's it's a long discussion, but uh, state policy in New Hampshire is way behind where it needs to be. So once again, I'm going to ask again. So pragmatically, and what was the other word you used? Uh, you know, swiftly. What can you actually do? For example, can you shift a town of any significant size? onto solar and not have them experience significantly higher rates than they would pay typically for gas powered or other forms of electricity? The answer is yes. And there's a new community solar uh, program that um, the PUC has just approved the rules for, mm -hmm. which is going to make a substantial, which is going to make substantial progress for municipalities um, and counties, which want to offer residents uh, discounts for um, uh, going towards renewable energy. That's that's one bright spot of progress that we've made um, in the state. And, uh, you know, for businesses, uh, the federal legislation is about to uh, put in a 30 percent uh, investment tax credit uh, mm -hmm. for uh, going solar. That means that uh, what would otherwise you're basically spending two thirds of the actual cost for investing in solar. Mm. And as and the market has spoken, we are moving towards a clean energy future. Uh, the market will take us there. State policy and federal policy um, are going to need to push that. And uh, it can happen. Uh, but for the lack of education and the lack of will, for example, in a state like New Hampshire, uh, I cannot understand for the life of me why uh, this is ideologic um, and political when it ought to be a universal sense that uh, we're all in this together and we can make the moves and create the policies and, we and, need to. And this is the uh, first thing us. that we that we extremely disagree on, because I don't think there's any lack of will, et cetera. It's just a lack. It's just pragmatic with the way the way the world actually is. Some you have to have lights on after dark. Because that's how things work. And you have to be able to get the power to the people who need it at a price they can't afford. And well, with wind and, and solar at such minimal levels and with uh, with such unreliability, they, it, it's I mean, is there a solution to the unreliability problem that I'm not sure aware of? the advances in in battery storage are immense um, and the technology, the technology is there uh, for the deployment. And people are used to, you know, people are going to, I would say, need to look at uh, some slightly longer term horizons for investments and the investments that need to be made need to be supported by state policy, uh, in addition to federal policy. And if the proper policies are there, the deployment of the technology can happen. And uh, yes, solar, only, solar works uh, on the sun, but if you've got uh, the utilities working with you, and you have ba appropriate battery technology, you can solve your backup problems. Well, well, we are way far away from having the battery capacity to come close to you know, doing to to filling anything close to the whole. Uh, you, you know, Elon Musk, who's obviously a big fan of battery power, says that we're one thousand years away at the current level of uh, capacity and uh, materials to solve that. So I don't know that we're going to get there. So let's. We'll have to we'll, we'll put a pin in that, Congressman, for future conversation. One last thing, and then I'll ask that question. 
what would your advice be to the folks who are running in the second district in 2022 in particular, not that you're going to help out Republicans because obviously uh, Congresswoman Custer has the advantage of incumbency, but just, you know, uh, first time employee, you know, candidates. So you've got uh, mayor George Hansel who always ever run for is mayor, you know, uh, Lily Tang Williams. I don't think, well, maybe she has run, but, but they're, they're relatively newbies in the political field. I'll put it that way. What would your advice be to political newbies in the second district? Well, I'd say that anybody who um, uh, questions the uh, outcome of the 2020 election and is a stop and is a big lie uh, perpetrator is in real trouble in the second district. And I think that um, anybody who hitches their star uh, to the fortunes of Donald Trump does so at their peril. And those two go hand in hand. Um uh, we care about our elections in New Hampshire. We run good elections and sound elections. Um, and the the big lie is just that. And the voters in the second district, although the Cook political report may say it's a toss up, the voters in the second district are uh, smart people and they are not um, extremists by and large. And the positions that I've seen by the entire slate of Republican candidates are extreme speak more to the far right than they do to the practical middle, which represents the bulk of New Hampshire voters. Okay. Uh, so th take that advice, kids. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but <laughs> there you go. He's won there twice. You can't ignore that fact. And finally, who is the New Hampshire politician, political leader, past or present, that uh, you admire most, Congressman Paul Hodes? Uh, Ray Burton. Executive, wow. long-term yes. executive counselor, Ray Burton. And I'll tell you why. Because Ray, 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 was, Ray had a way with people. Mm -hmm. Ray, it, it, Ray, Ray put his, his constituents and his state above his party. Um, I, I mean, I got to, to know him well and uh, visited the North Country frequently. Mm -hmm. And for Ray... Politics was about helping people. That that was the lesson that I that I really drew from him. And it, you know, there all kinds of things didn't matter to him if you paid attention to the needs of his constituents. And he didn't care, as far as I could tell, whether I was a Democrat, a Republican, or a green-eyed uh, alien. I mean, right. he he what he cared about was what he was there to help people and to do right by the people, by the people of his district. And I, I, I appreciated that. And um, uh, I think he, his example of putting constituents and uh, state and the interests of the state above that of party are, are important lessons for us. And uh, hopefully um, we'll get back to a little bit more of that in this country. Democrat Paul Hodes picks Republican Ray Burton as the politician he admires the most. It's a perfect ending to this podcast. I'm, I'm going to let you get away with some of your wild misassertions earlier in the conversation just because of that graceful note. And uh, let's go out with some more music from musician Paul Hodes. Thanks so much for being part of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Love you.